Welcome back to the business of blueberries. You may notice I'm not Casey Cronquist. My name is Tim Hamrich. I'm usually the guy helping Casey behind the scenes to produce this podcast every week. But being the holidays and the end of the year, Casey asked if I just put together a few highlights from the podcast so far. I personally have learned so much from the guests on this show. I usually get to hear each episode maybe three or four times through the editing process, but it was still a lot of fun to go back through footage from this first year to pull out clips for today's episode. As it became clear back in March that in-person interactions were going to be out of the question, I helped Casey launch this podcast as a way to keep the lines of communication in the industry open. I don't think either one of us could have ever predicted the level of positive response that we would receive from this show. So thank you very much to those of you who have tuned in, subscribed, and provided feedback. But to put a punctuation mark on 2020, here are a few highlights from the business of blueberries so far. I like to think all of our shows are must-listens, but here are just a few you might want to go back and binge on again and again. It was hard to narrow down this list to only seven, uh, but here they are. So go grab yourself a Boost of Blue and enjoy these seven episodes to binge on before 2021. A good place to start here is with one of the original springboards for what is now USHBC, Health Research. And there's probably nobody better to talk about health research than Dave Brazelton, the executive chairman of Fall Creek Farm and Nursery in Oregon and the chair of the USHBC Health Research Committee. Casey sat down with Dave on episode 12 of the podcast, and he did not disappoint. Before USHBC, back in the 90s, uh, of course, there was North American Blueberry Council and the kind of the Health discovery happened before we had USHBC. There was some research that came out from back east at Tufts University, a researcher by the name of Jim Joseph. That was one that really hit that was showing some of the bioactive effects of blueberry consumption with aged rats. And they actually, in studies that he was doing, he's a behavioralist, cognitive behavioralist on specializing in aging. And um, what he was uh, able to find in the research that he did was that these older rats that actually added blueberries to their diet in many areas of measurement actually um, improved their performance in memory, in balance, all the things that start to go as we get older. And those were models for aging. And that kind of hit the news at the time there when a lot of people were starting to get interested in food as a direct contributors to health. You remember the wine information? Everybody loved the red wine information. Of course, yes. Gave us a reason to have that glass of wine at night <laughs> and other pieces. But that hit at the right time. And I remember being kind of frustrated there in the late 90s. I saw this potential. Geez, we could do more of this. We could explore more of this. But certainly NABC didn't have a, the budget, didn't have the wherewithal to do that kind of uh, work. And when we started talking about U.S. Highbush Blueberry Council, and I looked at how promotion and research commissions or orders are put together, I was really supportive because I thought this could be a good vehicle. But I think the key on this is, yes, we've got a great product, but the process isn't accidental. When we looked at this, 
we decided we needed to do three things. Number one, we needed to use growers' hard-earned money really wisely. We had to be careful with every penny that we spend and make certain if we're going to invest it in health research or in other, uh, other parts of that, that it was a strong investment. The next one is we needed to develop system protocols that were state-of-the-art. The behind the scenes on this, how we request proposals, what institutions do we go to, what's process that we put together. Those are the types of things that we did through the years to actually, in many ways, keep up with or outcompete commodity groups that were much larger than ourselves for this health message. I think we had blueberries were a, were a great product, but you've got to do the work and build the body of science. And in order to do that, you've also got to be a product that's easy to work with and attractive to world-class scientists to be able to do the work. And we quickly gained that reputation. The last thing that we decided is we wanted to keep investigating the health benefits as long as they were there. I don't think any of us saw how wide and deep these were going to go, but we wanted to always investigate new possibilities. And that's carried us a long way. That health research and the USHBC's ability to articulate the research to consumers is what drove the blue wave, as most of you know. And this is certainly part of what will continue to drive blueberries forward from here. Inspiring possibilities and driving blueberries forward is exactly what we talked about with Soren Bjorn, the president of Driscoll's of the Americas based in California. We ended up splitting Soren's interview into two parts, which you can hear on episodes three and four. Here's a highlight from episode three, where Soren talks about how health research is just one reason that blueberries are in the sweet spot for consumers. Well, I mean, I think it's uh, blueberries are simply in the sweet spot of where consumers want to be. It's healthy. It tastes good. So, you know, that's a lot of produce that's healthy, but doesn't taste very good. Blueberries taste good. And then it's super convenient. It's really the most convenient of all the berries, right? And it's, it sort of has that right size that, you know, even little fingers can eat them. And then clearly the other thing that's happened is that the product has just gotten better and better and better and more and more available. And so when I got into the business, you had a winter deal that was in Chile and Argentina. And then you had the traditional summer deal you know, mostly up and down the East Coast and then a little bit up in the Pacific Northwest. Now it's a year-round business. And we know from all the berries that the more you can make the product available year-round, the more engaged consumers are going to be. And so you sort of have this perfect combination of year-round engagement, health, convenience, and taste good. Soren has a unique perspective of somebody who has worked with all different types of berries at the highest levels for years. Casey asked if he'd share some advice on how, in blueberries, the industry can stay competitive during these challenging times. Well, I think the best thing you can do is to really go out and understand what is possible. We really try to advise our own growers of doing this. Okay, I can tell you, we were supposed to have a very large contingency of our Mexican growers go to Peru for the uh, International Blueberry Congress, okay, down there here in August. Okay, so that's not happening this year. But it's so important that you understand whether you are running an individual farm or a large business, that you understand what you're up against. It's a lot easier to compete against the known than it is to compete against the unknown. 
and it's very easy to, I think, sort of dream up scenarios about things that you don't know anything about. And so if you haven't been out there to see it, you really need to go and see it, okay? And we really encourage our growers to do that all the time. We take our growers to the marketplace, show them what's in the marketplace. We take them to competitive regions and show them what's going on in competitive regions. And if that isn't in the Americas, you know, somewhere else around the world, then we try to do that. Because then, and then as an individual grower, you can try to figure out, can I get there? You know, for example, in Florida, I think it's possible to get there. But I really think that you need to move to the much more southern part of Florida, sort of Lake Placid, you know, Palm Beach County, not by the coast, inland, okay, it was way cheaper, and try to compete in a very different production system than the traditional Florida production system, right? So I think you got to get into some kind of evergreening system, okay, which is really the way to grow today, and not a system that relies on Dormex, which is how the Florida, you know, a lot of the Florida industry was created originally. And so... My encouragement is just for people really to go out there and really try to understand, is it possible for them to compete? And I would argue that for most, it is possible, but you got to be willing to reinvent yourself. Well, speaking of reinvention and of Florida, one of the most recent guests was Dr. Paul Lyrene, a retired blueberry breeder from the University of Florida. Paul was instrumental in the development of the Florida blueberry industry. We featured him in episode 26 about the history of blueberries in the Southeast and what it's like to develop the genetics that have been so important to this industry. Even though Paul has been retired since 2009, he's still thinking about the future of blueberries. Our tomato breeder retired some years ago. He gave a lecture on his retirement. He said the plant breeder is breeding for three different groups. He's breeding for the grower. Variety's got to be easy to grow. Breeding for the marketer, the thing's got to ship well and get ripe at the right time. And he's breeding for the consumer, the people that actually eat the things. So, so the variety has to, to be okay for all three of those different groups. There's some really, really some far out things that can happen to blueberries that are on the horizon. And I think they'll be done in the next 30 years. If you look at some close blueberry relatives, for example, the bilberry in Europe, is much esteemed because of its extremely strong pigmentation. If you open up a, a bilberry, it's black inside or dark purple. And the Europeans really like that. If you take a fresh blueberry and open it up, it's green inside or white. And the Europeans have always looked down on the American blueberry because of that feature. There's no reason why we can't turn the American blueberry or the high bush blueberry to having a black flesh. Can be done. The uh, exotic flavors, I've mentioned already, there's a lot of different types of exotic flavors that would really enhance, I think, the marketing of the blueberry. The textures, the, the crisp ones, uh, I think are much more uh, liked than the softer ones. There are some genetics that makes blueberries extremely crisp. You could make them like a Fuji apple when you bite into the things. I remember one of our selections, uh, Sweet Crisp, when we first put it out, my wife made a pie out of it, and when the pie was baked, we opened it up, and the blueberries were all intact. They hadn't broken whatsoever in the baking process, and so it was a very strange pie. <laughs> but to eat that thing fresh, it's like everybody's favorite. All the growers say, well, I'll plant like 15 plants of that so I can eat them, but I'm not going to plant it for commercial production because it doesn't yield enough. And then one of the grower things I think that's important uh, we're having is the blueberry plantings get larger and larger and the bees get fewer and fewer. It gets harder and harder to get the 
plants pollinated right. And so we lose a lot of yield in many years in the, in the South because there's not enough bees. The blueberry flower is designed to be pollinated by one particular bee, and that's not the honeybee because honeybees are old world and blueberries are new world. The bumblebee and the southeastern blueberry bee are the pollinators of blueberries. And that all worked good when we had five-acre farms, but when you have 100-acre farms, there are not enough of those bees to go around. So we have to redesign the flower so the bee can easily, any, any bee, including honeybee, can easily go inside there and, and get the pollen. Those are a few changes that could be made. Then the, the whole thing about health benefits, you know, there's, there's a lot of beneficial uh, things in blueberries. And, and, and if you look at bilberries and lingonberries and cranberries, and, oh, there's a pile of different wild blueberries that you can take genes out of and put into, into highbush blueberries. Those have their own unique uh, chemistries that some of which might be really good for you. So there's just an endless amount of stuff that yet could be done. As Paul alluded to, there's still so much opportunity out there for blueberries. But first and foremost, these new ideas must be commercially viable. Blueberries have remained competitive in part because they are one of the only berries that can be mechanically harvested. One of our more popular episodes to date was episode seven, where we explored new technology to machine harvest blueberries for the fresh market. Joining Rod and Casey on that episode was Brian Foote of Oxbow and Noel Sakuma from Oregon Berry Packing. Here's Noel describing why he decided to experiment with this new technology. This farm, what we're really trying to do is we're trying to do a couple things. We have a only a certain size crew. We only can get over X amount of acres. So if there are acres that we see ahead of time that we're not going to get to, we have two options. We can machine pick it for frozen or we can machine pick it for fresh. And there, there's a big price discrepancy there on that one. So it's really seeing what potential there is one to four years out with as the technology improves and seeing right now with, you know, a labor force that can be inconsistent, you know, getting high quality fruit out of every acre. You know, I would like to see 100% of what I do at some point in the, you know, 80% goes export and 20% is machine pick for fresh. Nothing's machine pick for frozen. And that would be a good business model. But until we can really get really confident with this technology, we're really trying to figure out which harvests fit into this model. You know, is it second pick Draper? Is it third pick Liberty? Is it Aurora? How is last call at Machine Pick Fresh? Until we are really confident that each variety on each rotation is a good fit for Machine Pick for Fresh, that's the time when we're kind of doing these tests. And once we see, all right, this is the one, this is going to work well, then we'll bring it to you know a little larger scale. So right now I'm trying to find which varieties, which picks, which rotations really can fit into a high quality pack. It's to try to create a program that can be resistant to labor issues. It can be cheaper than the alternative and has the best technology on the market. And as of right now, I do believe this is the best technology on the market. You know, we've been looking for something like this. We've been asking around and uh, asking if we can make this or if, if anybody else could make it. And last year, actually, before I understood that this was this far in development, I actually just took some fresh 
uh, market uh, materials, threw them on the side panels of my machine and tried to build my own because I didn't think the market was going to come up with something in the near future. Hmm. So basically, I went through the process of making a piece of this myself until I realized, okay, somebody is finally building this because it, it's not a really complicated concept. So it, it's a little surprising that it took 15 years to get to where we are, but I'm just happy that we're finally here. <laughs> Now that he's found this mechanical harvesting technology, Noel says he's taking a data-driven approach to testing and deciding where it will best fit in his operation. Machine picking for fresh will not work for export for the time being. It's just even when you do it the best possible way, there's still a little bit of bruising. And when you're putting fruit on a boat or an air, it doesn't quite cut it for the quality on that one. But for domestic fruit, we all know how competitive it's getting in the market, especially with BC and Washington state doing a lot of machine picking for fresh. So the goal really is to just be better than everyone else. Because when you have your own label, you really can't afford to have subpar quality. So what we've been doing is we've been really trying to do small scale trials in order to be absolutely sure our quality is good and not just put something that we know is going to, you know, degrade in the marketplace. So unlike other people we where they might tr try to do large scale, we're trying to do very small scale, doing a lot of testing, very data driven. And once we're sure we have a really good quality product, then we're going to go a lot more large scale domestically. But even now with all the money and investment we're putting into it, this is really a small scale trial with some of the best machinery in the world. And, you know, once we feel really confident about that, we'll expand to our domestic markets. So there is really a big discrepancy with the export requiring just purely handpicked fruit. Continuing on with this concept of being data-driven, back in episode two, Casey spoke with Michigan blueberry farmer and Nature Ripe vice president of sales, Brian Bocock. He talked about the unprecedented challenges brought on by the coronavirus and how data has helped the blueberry industry navigate these waters. I really take my hat off to the flexibility that Casey and, and, and the team at USHBC really showed during those during those weeks because we had a we had a real unknown crisis in front of us that no one had any history or, or, or background on. Right. Everybody's swimming in the lake for the first time. And. One thing we circled around very quickly was needing to get on the shopper's list before they walk into the store. Why they're sitting at home and they're ordering online what they're going to get. And, and I'm not going to say that that ultimately helped drive all the results that happened in the marketplace during the time. I think there's a lot of things with blueberries that fell into place to help drive some of the sales results that everybody has seen. Keeping in mind, that doesn't mean grower farm beets that great, but there is numbers out there that suggest some pretty good things for blueberries. And I'm not going to say that everything USHPC did helped drive that, but it certainly didn't hurt it. Information is king, right? I mean, real, real numbers that you can trust really truly drives decision-making. Understanding how crops are coming on, understanding volumes, understanding the ebbs and flows of it. It's studying numbers and looking at different things and understanding price points and some of that's in the value equation. Some of that's in our packaging. Many of you that's going to listen to this podcast have heard me say before that we need to upsize our primary pack. We need to get away from a pint and move to something at a different level. And we need to back that up with data. I get it. 
and that's where the information flows through, and, and the data will support that. So the short version is, Casey, that information is king. The better information we have, the more reasons we figure out, one, how we're pleasing the consumer, two, how we're adding value to the consumer, and honestly, just as important as number one and number two, how are we displeasing the consumer? Where are we turning that consumer off? And how do we change that behavior to keep those con continual repeat purchases? I mean, my gosh, when I first got involved in this thing, I had a big old Excel, for lack of a better <laughs> Excel spreadsheet and a diamond meant, if I had a number with a diamond, that meant a five pounder. If I had a number with a square, that meant a 10 pounder. If it was just a number, it meant pints. That's how far we've come. <laughs> just like Brian said, things have come a long way. And that was evident in episode 19, where Rod and Casey spoke with Ellie Norris of Norris Blueberry Farm in Oregon and Brian Brown of Moff Rota Optical Sorting. Ellie talks about how this technology can save them on labor, but also provide more consistent quality for their customers. We were just looking at the future and uh, labor is becoming more and more of an issue. And the fact that we can just get such a precise dialed in quality on an optical sorter that you just can't get with hand sorting. An optical sorter doesn't get tired. It doesn't get distracted. It doesn't wander away. And you can really run it 24 hours a day. So that was our big key in wanting to go towards an optical sorter. And we went with Moth, one, because they're a family company, and that's a big thing for us. Our marketer is a family-owned company, and knowing that Moth is a multi-generational family company was something that we were very keen on. We were also the first, if not the second blueberry sorting line that I believe Moth put in in North America. And so being able to be on the ground floor and help design in a sense and work with them and develop it and really share our knowledge with their company was something that we really wanted to do. We just didn't want to buy something off a shelf and plug it in and go. We really wanted to get a custom machine that worked for us and our needs. And the last three years have been amazing. We've gone back to the drawing board multiple times with Moth and they've listened to our concerns and our ideas and ran with them. And now we have a fantastic machine. The ability of the Moth to be more precise with sorting soft has been fantastic. And that has allowed us to have more volume to give to customers like Costco, who we have a fantastic relationship with. And so we've been able to do more shipments that way. If we were running on our manual lines, we just had to run a lot slower to get the same quality and then stack multiple soft sorters in front of it to hopefully capture all the soft and then make the judgment call like, well, okay, that pick of that variety isn't the quality that Costco wants to see. And so we choose not to send that to Costco. Having the moth has allowed us to open the door of more just sheer volume of fruit that we can potentially send to Costco because we know that's the quality that they want. If there's been one theme throughout all of these highlights, it's this. The future of blueberries hinges on innovation and delighting the customer every time. You heard it from Dave Brazelton. You heard it from Soren Bjorn, Brian Bocock. You just heard it again from Ellie Norris. But I don't think anyone put it more succinctly than Tom Avanellis of Agriculture Capital did in episode nine. I think innovation takes many avenues. And let's work back from what's the most important part of it. Am I delighting my customer every single time? And if we look at that as being the base with the quality standards that we need to set, be it fresh frozen, whatever else, that needs to be the platform for our focus and how we build. 
Now, we certainly recognize the pressures that are on the blueberry industry, issues around labor in the West Coast drought, regulations, these new COVID protocols. All these details are significant in terms of how we operate. And so where do you put innovation in each of these different aspects? We've talked many years in terms of already the aspect of mechanization. It's one of the reasons why I believe of all the berry categories, our greatest opportunity can be in blueberries because it is the only of the berry categories that can be truly economically and efficiently mechanically harvested at this time. I say that with a caveat because there is a huge evolution in that innovation to do it well. And it evolves genetics, plant structure, the equipment itself, post-harvest handling, the technology at the packing house, and understanding that product in turn time to the consumer. All those pieces have to be in place to implement the, the technology. We've done the same thing with a significant investment in the Unitech packing equipment that we utilize in our facilities uh, at Sublimity outside of Salem, is the ability to segregate individual berries, look through that berry with infrared light to pick out microbruising and separate that in order to still put up a extremely high quality fresh pack with mechanically harvested fruit is an essential piece of this, how you put innovation into work in each segment of what you're doing. These are elements that from a grower standpoint through the process that we need to continue to put innovation in place. There is no doubt that innovation will continue to propel this industry forward. But what can't be reiterated enough is that at the end of the day, we all need to meet the high expectations of customers. Realistically, most of the time, if I had to take a look at what are the goals, it's how do we continually build a culture of delighting our customers every single time? Now, I know that may sound a little bit odd, but realistically, those of us in the blueberry business, we're in the food business. And we need to recognize that we as farmers, what we're nourishing and what we're growing and what we're so proud of is quality blueberries that are going to have to delight our customers consistently to be successful. For those that are packing and handling the fruit, that same diligence and helping them understand that culture of what takes place. And for those at the packing houses that are packing and placing the clamshells to make sure that we get all those pieces right with cold chain and that detail, we're all intricately involved in this aspect of how do we deliver to the consumer, the housewives, the children, the families of the United States and across the world, a product that they're delighted every single time. And so that culture build, both within operations and even with the mindset of, of our investment team, is critical because that's what will drive the long-term success of this business, that regardless of who it is, they've got to be delighted by what they're eating and what they're receiving and what a blessing to be a part of this industry. What a great way to wrap up this episode and really this entire year. I know 2020 has been full of challenges for all of us, but hopefully hearing this wisdom from industry leaders can serve as a reminder that, just as Tom said, the entire industry is in this together. And with a focus on innovation and delighting the customer every single time, we will continue to inspire possibilities in the new year. What would you like to see from this podcast in 2021? Please let us know. We want to make sure that this show is valuable to you as we enter this new year. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with more innovation, collaboration, family, and hard work right here on the Business of Blueberries. Blueberries.